This is Richard Pothig, remembering 86 years of my life, beginning in New York City, where I was born. My life was shaped in the stormy days of the Depression. I grew up in the Yorkville area of the 1930s. We think of neighborhoods, and Yorkville was my neighborhood, as places of social nurture, where a sense of history and family values are passed on. My neighborhood was also the place where my political education began. Yorkville was the name given to the midsection of Manhattan's east side, an area which runs roughly from 72nd to 92nd Street from the East River over to Central Park. Yorkville, in its working-class section of the my day, was a microcousin of Central Europe. Like Lower Manhattan, Yorkville was the terminus of many immigrants fleeing the restiveness of 19th century Europe. The political map of Central Europe was in flux. The old Austro-Hungarian Empire was under pressure from the many ethnic peoples contained within its boundaries. Most people emigrated to find a brighter economic future. People were also immigrating to be free of the political constraints of Austrian rule. The Jews who settled in Lower Manhattan fled the pogroms that were endemic to Eastern Europe. Many Germans, my grandfather among them, emigrated to avoid Prussian military conscription, and in his case, the anti-socialist campaign of Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. All of my grandparents settled in New Yorkville after their, their departure from Germany in the 1880s. After the First World War, the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire added to the Central European flavor of Yorkville in which the Germans predominated. The community mix brought together Austrians, Czechs, Slovaks, Hungarians, Italians, Russians, all together with Irish and Scots. This was the human fabric of my neighborhood. As a child of the Depression, I was four when Wall Street crashed. Insecurity was in the air you breathed. A great uneasiness lay over the country, and the sidewalks of New York showed the harsh face of economic insecurity. To this day, I can still see in my mind's eye the pictures which became symbolic of the early 1930s. The snow-covered belongings of a family evicted from their apartment piled on the sidewalk. It terrified me to see someone's furniture, lamps, and boxes in front of a tenement. At six years, my mind moved quickly to where will these people go? Who will take them in? How close is our family to this? What if my father loses his job? Where will we get the money for the rent? This scene was so much a part of life that children incorporated it into their daily play. A settlement house worker in New York recalls that one of the games nursery children played in her neighborhood was eviction. And she said, they don't play keeping house anymore or even having tonsils out. Sometimes they play relief, but eviction is their favorite. It has more action than they all know how to play. I soon discovered the consequences of eviction. One Sunday afternoon in the late fall, my father took me for a walk to Central Park. It was the height of the Depression. I was about seven years old. 
Conditions had gotten worse in the city with more evictions and more unemployed people flocking to the cities for work. Whether my father had taken me on this walk for a purpose or as a chance outing, I'll never know. But a message came through to me that day. We walked across 79th Street into Central Park. It was a brisk walk since the weather had gotten colder. We passed rock overhangs in the park, against which people had built makeshift shanties out of scraps of lumber, cardboard, and even some odd-sized metal sheets. And people stood forlornly outside their shacks, around small fires trying to keep warm. The scene was deeply etched in my mind. It was the beginning of my political consciousness. At the same time as we were deep in our depression, trouble was brewing in other parts of the world. The mix of nationalities in Yorkville kept one sensitive to events taking place in Central Europe. Many of those who had come to Yorkville after World War I still had relatives living in Europe. Germans were continually being reminded by their relatives of the hyperinflation in Germany. Every family had their souvenir million Deutsche Mark notes sent by a relative. People in the neighborhood from Czechoslovakia were proud of their new nation, newly formed out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But they were also wary of its precarious state, with the Czechs and Slovaks trying to live together. We also began to hear of a man named Adolf Hitler. The impact of his rise to power in Germany was being lived out in the tenements, the shops, the movie houses, the restaurants and beer halls, and on the streets of Yorkville. As street kids, the changing shakeup of Europe was not uppermost in our minds. We went to school, and after school played our street games. We let our parents do the worrying. But there was no escaping it. We were conscious of who we were. Children of Czech, Slovak, Hungarian, Russian, Austrian, and German ancestors. The events which made the headlines in the daily news, or which were dramatically portrayed in Pathé News at Saturday movies, kept slipping into our consciousness. On Saturdays, we would take off to the Monroe Theater on 76th Street and 1st Avenue for a day of the movies. It was an all-day affair for 25 cents. It was an expenditure our mothers were happy to make. They knew where we were, and that was comfort. Besides the double features, there were cartoons and one of the chapters in 15-chapter serial thriller, each Saturday's miraculous deliverance of the hero or heroine also whetted our appetites for the next great uh, possibilities for the theater. But in the midst of this theater, Malang, there was the Pathé News, the one bit of reality invading our Saturday moving excursion. The news from Europe was greeted with a hushed silence, especially the footage on recent events in Germany. The pictures which grabbed one's attention were those of the massive political gatherings. These were usually scenes of a vast sea of people gathered in a huge stadium for some celebration, and Hitler on a podium delivering a hysterical oration. Most of us were thinking as we watched his gyrations, what's this guy so excited about? 
From the masses of the people came the automatic outstretched right arm and the shout, Sig Heil! Sig Heil! It was a powerful image, not easily forgotten. One which instinctively we knew was significant and suspected someday would affect us. Our Saturday experience during the 30s was our one weekly engagement with moving visual pictures. Today's continuous TV images overwhelm the eye. Their multiplicity dilutes their true significance. In the 1930s, we recognized, even as youngsters, there was something menacing in what we were seeing. One of the foreboding signs was the anti-Semitism which began showing up in the neighborhood. In the 1930s, most families had a radio. Father Coughlin's broadcasts out of Detroit were adding fuel to the fire of anti-Semitism. I remember once briefly hearing his staccato voice over the radio. My mother turned to another station before I got any of his message. Out of nowhere on our streets appeared another anomaly, a covered wagon bearing a man named Joe McWilliams. McWilliams would choose a busy street corner in Yorkville for his anti-Semitic diatribe. I once saw him on 79th Street and 1st Avenue. He spoke from the back end of his covered wagon. I didn't know the word at the time, but he was haranguing the crowd. Some people passing by stopped to listen. Others moved quickly on, making some comment under their breath. The listeners were spread far apart. One of McWilliams' supporters handed out leaflets to those who had stopped. At one point in his speech, he came down from the wagon and walked among the crowd with a lantern looking for Eskimos. I later learned that this was his terminology for Jews. At the time, his antics were beyond me. People I know dismissed McWilliams as a screwball. Anti-Jewish feelings in Yorkville were never evident to me. I experienced no hostility to Jews from among my friends. There were few Jewish young people on our block. Our gang gathered on 83rd near the corner of 1st Avenue. On occasions, Morty Dworkowitz could play ball with us. His family owned the children's dress shop, which was part of our 1582 First Avenue building. Our family had moved to this tenement in 1935 from 1543 First Avenue. My mother brought many of my sister Ernest's clothes from the Dvorkowitz shop. Morty went to a school out of the neighborhood. Only occasionally was he available to join our ball games. He liked to play ball, and we welcomed him into our group. Morty's mother would come looking for him. She was concerned about his health since he was not a robust kid. She was always afraid he would get overheated. Morty would resist her, but she made him stop playing ball. This was annoying when it was in the middle of a ball game. Then we got annoyed at anyone who broke up a ball game. Many small shops owned by Jews along First Avenue. As a teenager, two of my after-school jobs were with the Corner Pharmacy on 83rd Street and with a hardware store in our 1582 building, both of whose owners were Jewish. Our tenement was owned by a Jew, Lionel Talbot. 
Since we were superintendents of the building, our family had close relations with Mr. Talbot. Our family doctor was Jewish. I respected Dr. Dick and felt comfortable in my visits to his office. Grandfather Pothig's socialist background and his association with Jews of similar persuasion laid a foundation for openness to Jewish people in our family. My hand Helen told me that my grandfather had written to his sister in Germany critical of the political events that had brought Hitler to power in Germany. When his sister replied, she expressed uneasiness with his, with his opinions. She asked that he not make any further comments on politics in Germany. When Hitler's Nationalist Socialist Party finally took control of the Reichstag and the German government, Grandfather Pothig's classic comment was, now we now have a lunatic running an insane asylum. For some German immigrants, the early events in Germany under Hitler, particularly the growth in employment, brought a sense of relief. Many of them had come out of Germany after the First World War. The humiliation of Germany after her defeat, whether she was right or wrong in the First World War, left a residue of bitterness. For those who remained in Germany, the devastating inflation and the hard times were continually reported to relatives in the United States. Each family had their collection of inflation Deutsche Marks. Even our family, which had been in New York City for two generations, had a handful of German inflation notes whose paper value was in the hundreds of millions of Deutsche Marks. One note is for 50 million Deutsche Marks. The money conjures up a picture I once saw in a history book of a man pushing a wheelbarrow of German inflation notes to buy a loaf of bread. Having a German background in the United States in the 1930s, and especially during the First World War, was not easy. It was probably for this reason that those of German heritage assimilated more easily into American culture. Nathan Glazer and Patrick Moynihan made this point in their book Beyond the Melting Pot. It was a study of ethnic groups in the city of New York. Among all the immigrant groups coming to the United States, they write, the Germans have made the quickest and the easiest transition. By the third generation, most connections with one's European heritage have waned. Even living in a German neighborhood where the German language is still heard and the shops are on the streets, my efforts at learning German in junior high school were poor. Perhaps it was the way it was taught, but I believe reverse psychology was also at work. To do poorly in German was to prove that you were fully assimilated into the United States. In our neighborhood, political events were part of everyday conversation. We began hearing them discussed in the stores in which we worked. When I was 12 in 1937, I went to work on Saturdays at Carl's Butcher Shop on 1st Avenue between 81st and 82nd Street. My job was to ladle out sauerkraut from a large barrel in the back room and to make meat deliveries. Carl, a balding, red-headed German, had immigrated from Germany after the First World War. He was fast on the quips and had a good sense of humor. Louis, his helper, was Jewish. Every so often, events in Germany would come up for discussion. Carl would make some over-the-counter caustic remark about them with the added word how glad he was to be in America. 
Karl was sensitive about what was happening in Germany. He never let anything get out of hand. One of my regular meat deliveries was around the corner on 82nd Street to the St. Stephen's Roman Catholic Church, a Hungarian parish run by the Franciscan Order. On one occasion, I got a lesson in geopolitics. The Franciscan father in the kitchen sat me down on a stool and put a piece of hot apple pie in front of me. He had a map of Japan on the wall. He pointed out the small land mass and told me about the islands under the pressure of tremendous population pressure. Now, what do you think is going to happen when you have a small land mass and so many people, he asked me. Answering his own question, he said, why they will want more room. They will expand. That's why we have a war in China. I had a close-up view of the Sino-Japanese War when Gussie Wagner came home from China with her friend Margaret Spear for their furlough in 1937-38. Augusta Wagner, the family called her Gussie, was my Aunt Helen's Wagner's sister-in-law. My Uncle Bill, Gussie's brother, was a bartender at the neighborhood family bar and restaurant on 87th Street and York Avenue. Gussie had grown up in Yorkville. By dint of hard work and good connections, she had gone to Wellesley College on a scholarship. It is also possible that she had some help from Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church, where she was a member. She was also a good friend of Henry Sloan Coffin, the pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. After Wellesley, Gussie went on to serve with the YWCA board. Then in 1925, she was sent to Yenching College by the Yenching College Committee of New York to serve as secretary to the dean of Yenching College for Women in Peking, China. She came back from China in June 1929 via the Trans-Siberian Railroad and with a ship out of Hamburg, Germany to study economics at Columbia University, where she received her Ph.D. in economics. She had become interested in the working conditions of Chinese laborers, particularly children, in the factories in the cities of China. Her thesis topic was on labor legislation in China, a book which was published in Peking in 1938. Gussie became a professor of economics at Yanxing College for Women in Peking a position she held from 1926 to 1942 when she was imprisoned by the Japanese. In 1937, at the same time I was getting my lesson in geopolitics from the Franciscan father, Gussie Wagner and Margaret Spear returned on furlough from China. Margaret Spear was the daughter of Robert Spear, who was, for many years, the executive of the Board of Foreign Missions of the Presbyterian Church. Gussie and Margaret decided to invite the Pothic nephews to an elegant downtown Chinese restaurant. My cousin George Spora, my cousin Richard, Uncle Albert's son, and I were the three invited to share in this occasion. We were told that this was a special treat to have a Chinese dinner with Gussie. This was not to be chop suey or chow mein, but the real thing. We were all about 12 at the time and had never been to a Chinese restaurant. The course came fast and 
furious. We did the best we could considering that the courses appeared exotic for our pure American tastes. Finally, the waiter came in with a huge platter. On it, a very, very large fish covered with onions, Chinese vegetables, and a deep red sauce. The waiter set the fish down with its head looking me directly in the eye. Without a word, I gave my cousins a quick glance. Their eyes told the story. Gussie, an old Yorkville neighborhood girl, knew the whole affair was overwhelming us and let us off the hook. I kept in touch with Gussie as I went on to college and when we met on holidays at my Aunt Helen's. Gussie helped deepen my political appreciation of the Chinese situation. With the entry of the U.S. into the war, following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Gussie and Margaret Spear were interned in the Shantung compound in Weizing by the Japanese army. They were repatriated in 1943 on the second journey of the Swedish Red Cross ship, the Gripsholm. On her return to the United States, Gussie was invited by the U.S. State Department to work in their Special War Problems Division. She was assigned to investigate and report on the conditions of the internment camps in the southwest United States, in which the U.S. government had interned Americans of Japanese ancestry. During her years of teaching economics at Yenching University, she had among her students some of those who were to become part of Mao Zedong's government. One woman, Kung Peixing, was a representative of the People's Republic of China at the United Nations Disarmament Conference in the early 1980s. When the People's Republic of China sent its first ambassador to the United Nations, Gussie, who was living in retirement in Bryn Mawr outside of Philadelphia, she had been headmistress with Margaret Spear at Shepley School, was sent a special floral invitation to the opening of the People's Republic of China at the United Nations Mission. The Chinese ambassador to the United Nations, Huang Hua, had remembered her intercession on his behalf during the student outbreaks against the Japanese occupation of Peking in 1936. The question of our identity took on a different dimension when I moved to Ohio for college. On the streets of New York, one's identity was related to a person's ethnic background. This point of identification changed when I arrived at the College of Worcester. Most of the students at the college had come from small towns or rural communities or were from the suburbs of Ohio cities. They identified themselves not by ethnicity, but by class, or by their father's occupation, or by their family status in their community. To be identified as a New Yorker, and from the tenements of New York, marked you as a character, a character worth knowing, but a person without substantial roots. Against this background, I became more conscious of class as a major shaper of identity. My immersion in the events of the late 1930s was a preparation for my long-term interest in history, that immersion was also laying the groundwork for my future political orientation. Daily life in a working-class family in a working-class neighborhood during the Depression helped prepare me for the political discussions 
in which I would find myself during college days.